Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is spending ten minutes or so with readers and book lovers from around the world, asking them what they're reading and what they'd recommend to anyone with a bit of time on their hands. Today I'm spending ten minutes or so with Campbell and BSFA award-winning writer, academic and satirist Adam Roberts, who joins me from London. Hello, Adam. Hello. How are you, sir? From London. Lockdown London. <laughs> Lockdown London. So you're easing up in, in, in Oz, but we're still, we're still in the grip of it over here. <laughs> so, so how is lockdown treating you, Adam? Well, I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say this because it is going to make me sound uh, smug and, and hate worthy, but I'm really enjoying it. My wife is not enjoying it. She's a much more gregarious and sociable person. I think she's really missing the human contact. Yeah. So I have to, I have to, you know, put on a, a sober face when I'm around her. Otherwise, she'd brain me with a rolling <laughs> pin. But what's not to like about lockdown? I get, I, I'm relieved of the necessity of leaving the house. I can just stay home. I can read books. I can write. I can do all the stuff I love doing. It's, it's good. I'm rather dreading it coming out of it, actually. <laughs> you, you don't miss I can the, see the appeal going out. <laughs> I'm turning into an anchorite. Although anchorites are all women, aren't they? So well, I'm yes. a male anchorite. I'm a mankorite. <laughs> Oh, so I guess, the, I mean, I can, I, I can also feel like I'd preempt the answer to this question, but so you find you're able, you're able to, to read, to work, to write during this kind of time? You're getting things done? I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm getting quite a lot done. And I know people and lots of friends are finding it quite hard to just find the, I mean, everyone has time now, perhaps, but yeah. some people find it hard to generate the enthusiasm or the energy, but it hasn't affected me. I'm touching wood as I say this, because maybe I'm tempting fate, but I mean, partly my, I mean, I know we're going to talk about what I've been, reading and partly my reading has been a bit constrained because this year i am one of the judges on the world fantasy award so i have i'm sitting in a study now with stacks and stacks of contemporary fantasy novels that they've sent me in so i've got plenty of reading to be getting on with mm-hmm. and you know we have to get this done by whenever it is we have to think it's the end of the month actually we have to start coming up with our shortlist so i've been you know, plowing through that keep keeping me busy yeah well let's segue into that then so adam what have you been reading? And critically, is it any good? Well, Jonathan, I would say I've read a lot of fantasy novels <laughs> and some of them are good and some of them aren't as good. Uh, it's exactly the, the diversity that you would expect. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting in one sense. It's yeah. given me a, a clearer sense of what where contemporary fantasy is mm-hmm. and where contemporary fantasy is, is in a healthy place there's a lot of really interesting work that's happening but it's also much more diverse than the traditions of fantasy might make you uh, assume there's we've kind of come out from under the the kind of tolkienian umbrella nothing wrong with tolkien i love tolkien but it's good to see many more different kinds of fantasy from different parts of the world different traditions different ethnicities different perspectives on the human condition all finding in fantasy ways of talking about what what really matters um, finding modes and, and images that express kind of important things that are happening nowadays so it's, at its best i think it is it is really good i'm being a little bit vague here because i don't want to kind of preempt the judges discussion well, but well, I, you know i can see you know, i just just not not to pick these out from hundreds and hundreds of books that i literally have sitting in, to my right as i speak to you now but only because these are the books i've read most recently sure I just finished um, Alex Harrow's 10,000 Doors of January, which is really good, really interesting, readable and accessible. I read James Bradley's Ghost Species. I know James is a friend of yours, uh, he's a friend of mine. I read an early draft of this. So it was really interesting to see how he finished that novel 
and it's quite different than the first draft I read. It's really good. Yeah. Have you read Ghost Species? Yeah. Remarkable yeah. book. I mean, James, most books James, of James's books are, but I think it's probably his most accomplished in many ways. Yeah, no, it's really, really beautifully put together, really nicely done. And again, really kind of mm-hmm. contemporary, really speaking to issues that really matter now. It makes yeah. it sound a bit worthy, and it's not at all. It's very, you know, readable and gripping, but uh, he's got that knack, James, of finding a way into really pressing concerns that you, you just... Um, what else have I read? I read Anne Leckie's Raven Tower. That's That was really good. You know, kind of traditional kind of European fantasy sort of book. I read... What else did I read? <laughs> Mark Elder's The Devil's Blade, which is good swashbuckling fun. Um, Lavi Tittar's Arthurian book by Force Alone, which is uh, violent. It's and very Lavi. Very Lavi, yeah. Kind of uh, a good, brutal fun, I suppose we could say. A nice <laughs> takedown of Arthurian um, pre raphaelitism yeah. I suppose we'd say. And it's all, you know, these are all good, really good books, and there's a, that, that's one of the joys of it. And you read a book and it will be a bit rubbish, and then you pick up another book and it's fantastic. It's It, it, it makes me think that the genre is in rude health, because I don't really write fantasy, I write well, science yeah. fiction. Well, I mean... And yet you've read quite, I mean, not to be, you know, about it, you've read quite a lot of fantasy and famously spent time analysing the work of the late, great Robert Jordan. Yeah. So yeah. you've got points of comparison, shall we say. I have, no, I don't. And I grew up reading Tolkien. And yeah. I've, I've written academic books about Tolkien and I'm kind of contemplating writing an academic history of fantasy. I might get round to that. One of the reasons why I accepted this gig. I've done judging before and it's it's quite onerous. It is. And I had told myself I was never going to do it again, but then I thought, well, this will give me a kind of snapshot of what's happening sure. in contemporary fantasy, and I might be able to connect that with the, the, the kind of deeper roots of where fantasy comes from. Yeah. It puzzles me sometimes that I haven't written the fantasy, given how much of it I, I read and I have read. It seems to me, I'm not sure why I haven't, actually. You wrote one. You just never got published, didn't you? Yeah. I, well, like, the reason it never got published is, well, I mean, it, it could be the reason it never got published is because it's crap. Let's not, let's not leave Occam's razor out of this discussion. But I think the reason it never got published is because I wrote it in verse. It was a sequel to Beowulf, and Beowulf is in alliterative verse. No, I, unless I'm... So no. I wrote a sequel to Beowulf in alliterative <laughs> verse. <laughs> well, I can see why that didn't get published. But I, I thought, maybe I misremember, but didn't you write a, P, uh, a novella for... PS or someone years ago oh, called yeah, the was... Rings or something, which was in the Tolkien universe. Yeah, so that was the idea behind that was uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is kind of set in the Middle Ages of yeah. Middle Earth. Bits of it are older than that, but most of it's kind of medieval. Hmm. And I wondered what Middle Earth would look like if we fast forwarded through to kind of like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this short novel, which was set, it was kind of in the style of Philip Roth or John Updike or something yeah. like that about an academic having an affair and, mm. and the driving around the freeways of Middle Earth. And he's a historian, so he's researching the events of the Lord of the Rings and he's all caught up in his kind of marital strife. Yeah. And I, we did, yeah, I talked to Peter about maybe publishing that. He was quite keen to publish it, but it's, you can't infringe the Tolkien copyright. No. They're very protective of their rights. <laughs> they are it's not very protective yeah. to them and I can't. Blame no, that. I, so we tried, we I, tried I, scrubbing out all the specific Tolkien references from the book, and then it just became a bit anodyne. It kind of lost yeah. its point because it was a book that was about Tolkien and about fantasy, and that 
sense. So it's, it languishes unpublished. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure I have a copy anymore, but that's a bit. I think I do. Frightening. I think somewhere I read it years ago. It fell into my hands. A digital copy fell into my hands, and I I may still have have it somewhere. So if I do, I'll send it on. I picture you as having this enormous vault full of yellowing (laughs) manuscripts. I've got a few odd things kicking around. I've got a an unpublished version of Lyriel by Garth Nix, but when it was a completely different book. Somewhere I have. 60,000 Extra Words of the Scar by China Mieville. <laughs> really? Yes, it was much longer once upon a time. Shockingly, yes. when you think about how long it still is, but still. So, mm. look, I mean, I've done what you're doing, the World Fantasy Award judging thing, and I found it fascinating and rewarding and frustrating. What would you say, other than the fact that it is in good health, that has been the most interesting thing you've learned about fantasy as you've worked through this experience? Or is it just that it's in better health than you thought it might have been? Well, I think if I if I think about because of my own experience is I grew up reading Tolkien, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I came of age uh, in. See, I'm now speaking like a character from a fantasy novel. Prithee and forsooth, I came of age in the 1970s. And then that then there was there were a series of things like Stephen Donaldson's um stories set in the land and um, the uh, various kind of cash-in Tolkien-style books, and I read those. And then there's this large body of imitative material that's just doing Tolkien again, and then there's this kind of anti-Tolkien thing. I started reading Mike Moorcock, and that comes through then into Grimdark, and Grimdark is really just a way of saying, oh, Tolkien's soft and wet, and we need to have some some fists and some boots and some torture scenes and some explicit sex and then you've really got a fancy novel and it's all it's all kind of shaped by this one book and it's a kind of strange thing and of course that's not actually the story of fantasy fantasy predates tolkien uh, there are many different kinds of fantasy um some of them are are sort of pseudo medieval kind of magical fantasies but others are other things and it bleeds over into arthurian fantasy and then into ghost, ghost stories and and magic and magical realism and and I think that's surprised me. There are there are quite a few derivative Tolkienian fantasies still being published, and there are some fantasies that come out of different traditions, African or Indian traditions, that are still kind of quite Tolkienian. It's just that they've swapped out Western Europe for Nigeria or, or Pakistan or whatever it might be. But there's also an enormous amount of really innovative and interesting stuff, often quite formally or stylistically innovative, that are exploring the ways we might rethink what magic means, what fantasy in, in all the senses of that word mean. And that, that's kind of exciting to yeah. to find all that in this commercial fantasy, in this commercial genre, I should say. Do you still read a lot of fantasy? Is I still read your- a, a lot of fantasy. And I, if I wasn't as hardcore a Tolkien reader as you were, I certainly read... I mean, we're not that far off in age, really, I would think. And mm. I we're both, read- what, 33? Something like that, 56. So I I read Tolkien, (laughs) you know, back at the end of the 60s, the early 70s, and then I read through the various waves of, you know, there was the Brooks Donaldson wave of, and then the Eddings Feist wave, and the Goodkin Jordan wave kind of thing. And I read through all of that, and then I also then went off into reading a lot of the, you know, there was the Ace Adult fairy tale range that that Terry 
Windling put together. It was a whole different kind of a thing. That was interesting. And then bibs and bobs around the place. So yeah, I've read a lot of fantasy and then I've kept my hand in. I mean, I read the Alex Harrow book you're talking about and just read her next one, which is terrific. I really liked it. Um, right. And so, yeah, I do. Uh, it's, it's that balance. I mean, also I find it's a, a balance, you know, reading a bit of that, reading some science fiction. It's interesting reading the, you know, the, the, the writers who do both and then seeing how they move around. I mean, following Greg Bear from hard SF into, you know, Celtic influenced fantasy, that kind of thing was interesting. So yeah. Let me ask mm. you this though. You, you've got this snapshot of modern fantasy now. How does that compare with how you feel about modern science fiction right now? Well, I think, I mean, it, again, it's, science fiction's really, the way I'd answer that, I suppose, is by saying, I think science fiction got the drop on fantasy, because fantasy is kind of backward looking by, yeah. by definition. I don't say that in a, in a derogatory no. way. It's kind of a nostalgic mode of art. It's there to try and re-enchant the world. And that means it's kind of small C conservative in lots of ways, often ideologically as well as, you know, aesthetically, whereas yeah. science fiction, uh, you know, again, I'm generalizing very widely, sure, of, of course, but science fiction is kind of not small C conservative because it's, by definition, it's about the encounter with otherness and alienness and it's forward looking and it, yeah. it encourages kind of these cyborg hybrids, and this and that. Yeah. So I think science fiction has uh, broke this, this, you know, this wave decades ago, actually. By the end of the last century, it was yeah. already apparent that the most interesting science fiction was coming out of traditions that were not Western Europe and North America. Sure. And I think that's, that's still going on. That's where the best and most interesting work yeah. is happening. Okay. So well, that's so, the, you know, that's, it's the encounter with otherness, isn't it? So yeah, therefore it, it becomes much. the governing metaphor of science fiction becomes hospitable to people who have been othered, who are coming from traditions that have been, you know, neglected and, and made subaltern and oppressed. And they can find in science fiction all sorts of fascinating ways of, of articulating that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then. We've talked about what you're reading. I have been asking people what they would recommend people who are locked in might spend time reading, whether it's a time for, you know, self-improvement and difficult works or comfort reading, whatever else. What would your, you know, your preference or approach be? Well, I feel I should, I should speak to, um, to type here i am a professor at the university of london and i'll tell you one thing i have been doing and this is all part of what we're talking about so i'm now thinking i'm trying to rethink the the heritage the the genealogy of modern fantasy and i think it, it clearly goes back before tolkien i think it goes back before um lovecraft and, and lieber and william morris i think it goes quite a long way back actually i've been rereading milton's paradise lost and I urge and exhort you to do the same thing. And it, it's very, it's clearly a classic. Everyone's heard of it. Mm -hmm. No one reads it unless they're instructed to do so by a yeah. literature professor. But people should, because it's really fascinating. And I came at it because I was doing something else. And so I read, uh, because I was doing something else, I was reading some William Empson's, the English literary critic. And he wrote a book about Milton called Milton's God, which is a kind of attack on Paradise Lost, in which he says, if you read Paradise Lost, the God described is a kind of, he's like Stalin. He's a horrible, torturing dictator. And Milton knows this, but can't say it because he's a Christian. So he, he has to put all this sort of material in that makes it inescapable that his God is evil. And that really interested me because then I, I thought, well, he's treating Paradise Lost like it's a fantasy novel. He's saying we don't, don't this the world building, if you like. 
of Milton's great epic is is more fascinating than a, a simple doctrinal kind of Christian reading would allow. Yeah. So I've been rereading Paradise Lost and it's really, really interesting. <laughs> it's much madder than I realised it was. It's been years since I've read it. And I urge and exhort you to do the same. I shall, have you ever I read shall, it? I have not, so I shall take it under advisement. I have to say, <laughs> no, I'm not being glib, but because several, actually during this, this conversational process I've been having, uh, several older works have been recommended to me that sound far more batshit than I ever thought they were going to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Paradise Lost sounds like an example. Uh, I, I, it turns out looking back that when I was young, I read an expurgated version of the Count of Monte Cristo. So I've never read yeah. the full version. And well, it's enormous, man. It's, a, it's, it's like 1400 pages long. It makes, it makes yeah. the Lord of the Rings look like a short story. And I was talking to someone, it turns out like a goodly chunk of it has nothing to do with sort of suffering in caves and yelling. It has an awful lot mm. to do with ponce around Paris taking drugs. So yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like, Those I probably should check that out. But then yeah, yeah, really I had cool. forgotten that Skylark of Space starts with sitting around taking drugs. So <laughs> the world is like that. So yeah. yes, so I, I will, I will definitely take that under advisement and will commend it to listeners as well. Okay. So in that context as well, moving forward, uh, let me ask. So what are you working on that people might be able to find at the moment? What's coming out in your world? What's Adam Roberts up to? So, um, yeah, as, as I say, the lockdown is, I'm, I'm, I'm I hate to repeat this because I really am making myself punishable, <laughs> but uh, the lockdown, I've been quite productive. I have a novel with my, my UK publishers, Galance, um, have it now. And I think it's coming out early next year. We don't have a publication date for it. Yeah. It'll be called Purgatory Mount, I think. And it's a kind of, it's a twofer with a, a near, I mean, uh, the part of me that worries about this is that half of the story is set in a near future America that is falling apart and descending into civil war. And I wrote it before the current events, but it's now going to look a bit derivative of, <laughs> wow. of the news cycle, but I can't help that. And the other no. half is this far future interstellar uh, space opera adventure yeah. where this spaceship from Earth goes to a planet and finds Dante's Mount Purgatory mm-hmm. on this deserted planet. Uh, this structure which looks exactly like the, the Mount Purgatory in Dante's Divine Comedy, mm-hmm. which is the half, little bit of the, the trilogy of the Divine Comedy. And the idea is you, in Dante's universe, you have to work your way up this painful mountain to purge all your sins before you can get into heaven. And they're trying to understand how this is, this, how this can be there and what's going on. And that was fun. I had fun writing that. Yeah. And that was kind of strange Dantean science fiction novel, which should be out, I think, next year. And okay. then there are other things. I don't really have anything out at the minute, fiction-wise. I suppose I have my non-fiction book. I wrote a biography of H.G. Wells. Yeah. And that that came out. Uh, Polgrave published that. Yeah. Um, and was that an a, a interesting experience, you know, diving oh, that man. deeply into the life of, of Wells? I, I, can, I can barely tell you. Uh, I, I mean, Polgrave approached me and said, would you, would you write this critical biography? They had this kind of literary biography series. Mm. of wells and i thought yeah sure i've read i've read wells's science fiction and i've read a couple of his other books yeah that'd be interesting it gave me an excuse to read more widely and and really get to know wells better and then i so i signed the contract and then i sat down oh man alive i mean he he published three sometimes four full-length books every year oh god starting in the 1890s without fail from the 1890s 
through the 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s. Oh, God. Right up until he died in 1946, he published <laughs> literally hundreds of books. Oh, God. And I thought, well, I can't write this biography <laughs> unless I read all this stuff. Oh, God. But I, so I worked through it, and I blogged as I was going to keep yeah. my kind of notes. Uh, but I did reach the stage, certainly by the early 1930s. You just open another H.G. Wells title, and you find yourself thinking, just die <laughs> if you died in 1932 then still have all these masterpieces i could talk about but i wouldn't have to read the next 15 years of your incredible productivity he just wrote and wrote and wrote but then I, he did say something quite nice about that so he was in he was asked in a newspaper yeah. interview how is it that you're so productive mr wells how is it that you publish so many books and his answer was well i'm an indolent man and i'm sitting down anyway so I might as well write something. I think that's a philosophy of life. I think I can get behind that. That's my lockdown philosophy. Wow. And it was great. I mean, I've now read the entire works of H.G. Wells, which not many people can claim. So I can at least boast that, but it was grueling for a while. It really was. It certainly sounds like we could all do with a, how would you put it politely, an expurgated version of the bibliography. <laughs> yes. The one without the yeah. gannets. <laughs> Anyway, look, Adam Roberts, thank you so much for having made time to talk it's to been, me today. I've genuinely enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jonathan. It's wonderful to chat. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>